Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers, and we find the roads that they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001. And you just heard intro music from Max Russo from the class of 2020. Today, we talk to Rahul Prabhu, class of 2016. He is a research and design engineer at Boston Scientific. We're going to see how one misread date on a resume sparked Rahul's curiosity pursue a career in biomedical engineering. All right, today's guest is Rahul Prabhu, class of 2016. Rahul, can you tell us what you do? Hi, Brian. Uh, yeah, or Mr. Turnbaugh. Sorry. It's, so it's, all, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, my name is Rahul Prabhu, and I'm an R&D engineer at a medical device company called Boston Scientific. Uh, currently, I'm part of a leadership development program, which basically means that uh, within the next three years, each year, I'll be cycling through a different role within R&D with the hopes of going into, uh, I guess, leadership eventually. So kind of... Let's let's start with maybe like what each one of those cycles would be. So the one that you're currently in right now, what is it that you're doing uh, within that, that, or what's the focus or concentration, and what and then what's the sequence out of that? Yeah, of course. And I should clarify by mentioning that I'm within the endoscopy branch, so I work on endoscopic products. Uh, but basically, right now I'm on the sustaining engineering team, which basically means. Uh, I address uh, any issues or problems that might arise with products that have just been recently commercialized. And then next year, I'll be on the new product development team, which is working with products that are about to be released in the market. And then lastly, during my third uh, year, I'll be in early R&D, which is essentially working uh, to develop solutions towards unmet clinical needs. So that's really the ideation phase or coming up with prototypes towards uh, devices that could eventually be implemented. So why, uh, just back up for my own ignorance, what is endoscopy? Yeah, of course. So, uh, and yeah, it's a pretty tough word. And quite honestly, I didn't really know much about it either before I got this job. But essentially, we're working with devices that uh, if you imagine some kind of camera or device that you loop through a patient's mouth, uh, that's basically used to access the internal, uh, I guess, chemistry of the body. So it's considered less invasive because you don't actually have to cut into the patient. You can just put it through their mouth. Uh, and then treat, say, tumors or uh, treat gallstones, et cetera. And so it's really exciting work. But, yeah, it's definitely a, a newer concept uh, just because the idea of, you know, putting something through a patient's mouth is seems scary, but is actually uh, able to create procedures that can last, you know, just 30 minutes as opposed to uh, having patients have to stay in the hospital for days after a surgery. And I would imagine the benefits of not having them – that much more closer to different type of pathogens that would get them sick. The shorter this time in the hospital is, is a benefit uh, for everyone, I would imagine. Yep, most definitely. So what's a day of work like for you? Yeah, so uh, each rotation will be much, much different than the other. Uh, I can say that on the sustaining team, a lot of it has to do with juggling different projects. And so uh, right now, at least, uh, I guess there, I should mention that there's four other people in my cohort that entered alongside me uh, six or four months ago. But basically, I'm specifically under one product. And so I'm usually placed on or I'd be placed on, say, multiple projects uh, to address a specific problem or a specific problem or parts under that product. So uh, I guess a typical day for me would be deciding, you know, what are the high priority items to address in each project that I'm on? And then uh, kind of what are the conversations that I need to be creating with people in, say, quality or microbiology or biocompatibility, uh, 
what are the the core the key stakeholders in a, you know a decision change or a design change that needs to be implemented and then kind of mapping out uh, what are the steps that need to go towards actually implementing that design change and I, I think and the other follow-up question I would have with like what you do during the day is for a lack of a better expression what are the cool toys you get to play with in the laboratory and r and d would you say that like is it a laboratory experience or are you working uh, through uh, computer programming modeling what is what is the actual like um, uh, workflow and the station of that look like yeah of course so uh, as a biomedical engineer we're kind of uh, taught to be jacks of all trades so it's going to be some, you know, documentation. It's going to be creating conversations, but then it's also going to be, you know, being in the lab and basically testing, uh, do, does this device meet the specifications that we set for it? So to give you an example, right, if we're, uh, if a material, for example, is supposed to have a certain durability, then I might put that through tensile testing through a machine called an Instron to basically test it to failure and see, you know, was it able to withstand, you know, X amount of force, uh, for example. And so, yeah, it's really fun to be able to be exposed to a lot of different test machines. And quite honestly, the testing that you're exposed to really depends on the project. And so that's, I think, the exciting uh, part of being on Sustaining is that one project could be just a lot of documentation, whereas another project could be a lot of testing. That sounds like so much fun to be able just to have so much everyday hands-on experience and, you know, maybe... Uh, break things along the way, but then having no foul in, in doing that, knowing that the next test will kind of give you more data to have action, to be actionable after that moment uh, when, once you know that. All right, so let's let's rewind a little bit here. So you, uh, how did you, so you, when you graduated, how did you, actually before you graduated, how did you come to want to choose uh, Georgia Tech as your uh, your your college? Yeah, of course. I think a, a better, uh, I guess, maybe answer to that would just be how I came to choose biomedical engineering, hmm. uh, because I had chosen Georgia Tech due to its strong biomedical engineering program. Uh, but biomedical engineering itself was something that I kind of discovered by accident. Uh, I, I knew I wanted, I was interested in engineering because, uh, you know, I was taking all the, you know, AP sciences like AP Chem, AP Bio, AP Physics, uh, as well as Mr. Johnson's, uh, you know, technical drawing classes and drafting design classes. Um, but biomedical engineering kind of Really, I stumbled into that field just because uh, I'd, I think during my sophomore year of high school, I had applied to be a volunteer at the hospital. And quite honestly, uh, when I initially volunteered, it was just because, you know, <laughs> I figured, oh, it'll look good on colleges or whatnot. Um, and so usually when a high schooler, I guess, applies to be a volunteer at the hospital, uh, it was called CDH at the time, though I think it's called Northwestern Medicine now. Uh, but basically, uh, when I had a, usually when a high schooler applies, they're put in the gift shop or uh, they're usually a brochure at the front desk or whatnot. But I think uh, in my case, they had forgotten to check my age. And so they put me as an ER transporter, which is generally something that uh, you have to be at least 18 to do. And uh, <laughs> it was one of the most fortunate accidents ever because uh, obviously I saw things that no 16-year-old should be seeing, uh, especially <laughs> transporting <That's> patients amazing. <laughs> in the emergency room, right? But uh, because of that, it got me thinking like, you know, Making devices is really cool, but uh, it would be even cooler if I could make a device that could actually benefit this patient. And so really at the end of the day, the, the thing that keeps me waking up every day is the idea that like the work I'm doing is something that will positively impact a patient someday. And so that's really exciting work. Oh, that was 
That was beautifully said. What a cool sequence of fate where that would happen, that the, <laughs> a, a mere bureaucratic oversight really became the, uh, the, the flame, or, you know, the spark that lit the flame and created the fire. <laughs> That's so cool. All right. So um, you get into Georgia Tech and um, what happens from there? So tell me about your coursework and uh, what was it like going to such a, an elite science school like that? Yeah, uh, I can definitely say the transition was quite rough just because uh, coming into Georgia Tech, I was definitely surrounded by people that uh, definitely came from stronger science backgrounds. Uh, but one of the strengths that I really played to and that I'm really grateful to Miko for is uh, being more all-rounded and coming in with you know the exposure to fields outside of science. And so I would say that the initial learning curve was definitely tough, having to take uh, you know both biomedical engineering courses, but also you know the standard gen eds and whatnot, and uh, I remember our first, uh, they do these things called weed out classes where like my first biomedical engineering class was intended to really convince people that uh, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't do biomedical engineering. And so I guess the one of the scarier class, memories, right? yeah, uh, one of the scarier memories was just, uh, you know, we were assigned in groups in that class and I had to get put in another group because everybody in my group had dropped, not just the class, but the major itself. And so uh, I want to say that Georgia Tech courses were difficult, but I'd say, uh, what I'm really grateful for about just going to a school like that is that it was never a dog-eat-dog environment. It was really a collaborative environment. And a lot of what helped me kind of adjust to that steep learning curve was just having friends that I could study with and do work with. That's 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 such a key ingredient where people don't have their claws out and trying to have a one-up <laughs> uh, on each other. That's a, that's a, what a great experience that they were able to foster that at, at Georgia Tech. So then while you're at Georgia Tech, how do you then um, maneuver, or I shouldn't say maneuver, how do you then make your way into seeking out an internship? Uh, and what was that sequence like? Yeah, of course. So uh, quite honestly, there, there is hard work involved, but a lot of it does have to do with luck, especially in the medical device industry where you typically need experience. Uh, but uh, for me, it started off with uh, just coming in uh, to, I guess, this program called Grand Challenges, uh, which is what incoming freshmen uh, can apply for. And basically, that's uh, basically it was like 100 freshmen coming in and basically living in this dormitory and basically being paired into groups where you are tasked with spending the year trying to come up with a solution to an unmet, an unmet need. And in my case, I was obviously more interested in healthcare. And so I got to be in that group. And that was a leadership experience from the get-go that I could leverage. And that was how I got my first research position. And then from research, it was just a matter of kind of a trickle-down effect where once you have your first experience, it's easier to get the other. And so when I first got a research position in Emory, I was able to, through my professor, network into getting a position at Northwestern in Chicago. And then from there, I was able to leverage that research experience to get you know an internship at a startup the following year. And from that startup, be able to get uh, an internship at a bigger company like Medtronic, which is where I entered last summer. And so really one thing leads to the other, but it starts with kind of that first stroke of luck that allows you to get your foot in the door. And from there, it's just a matter of networking, honestly. Yeah. So, I mean, luck was involved in it for sure, but I mean, but there was, I mean, it's, it's not as if you weren't really working really hard at any step uh, along the way. And I'm wondering if, do you remember what the project was that, uh, that you worked on that you uh, started off with that where you guys had to solve that year long problem? Do you remember what the, uh, what the scenario was, the, the, uh, the simulation? Yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it came, I think we were trying to, 
develop a, a way to prevent uh, TTIs, which are transfusion transmitted infections that might come from blood donations. Uh, honestly speaking, at the end of that year, we realized that it just wasn't feasible for a couple of freshmen to do, but it really did get me thinking into what it would be like to develop a project. And actually, uh, what I, I think I attribute more to is the idea that eventually in a later class, uh, I was actually able to work with some teammates to actually develop a glove to reduce tremors. And that was something that actually did take off and uh, was one of the first things that I could file a patent for, I guess. And uh, I guess through these classes, uh, especially project-based ones, that's how you kind of understand what it takes to make a device and actually implement it, you know, into the market. Hold on, back up. Did you just say you were able to file a patent? Yes. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I, all right. Well, all right. Let's start with that. <laughs> Describe that whole process then. Yeah, it's uh, it's really difficult, but at the same time, not as tricky as people think it might be because uh, it starts off with filing what I think is called a provisional patent. And then from there, it goes on to a non-provisional, which is the more technical form of that. And so uh, a provisional patent, uh, I believe, and I may have switched these terms up, so don't quote me on this, but basically the, <laughs> the initial draft can be as simple as a, a sketch on a napkin, uh, but from there it comes down to uh, going through a more rigorous process. And so for me, I had to look at the existing technology as well as uh, the technology that we we're presenting, which is uh, was essentially a weighted glove that senior citizens or really anyone with essential tremors could wear, and then look at kind of what makes this similar to existing products as well as what makes it different. And so uh, for me, it was just a, a learning process in terms of like the legality involved with looking at a medical device, what makes uh, a device a medical device, for example, as to and what class is that medical device, and then what are the steps that you need to take to file that. So yeah, it was an no, exciting process. Now, could you describe what the – so you said it was a, a medical device that was something that mitigated the tremors for senior citizens. Could, could you like maybe uh, describe the, uh, the functionality of it again? Yeah, of course. So it, it's really simpler than it, it sounds in the sense that you would – if you imagine a glove that allows you to insert weights uh, as you go along, uh, it, the idea is that those weights should counteract uh, a patient's tremors uh, when they're using it. And uh, – yeah, honestly, with, with medical devices, as complex as they are, I'm a fan of the whole keep it simple uh, mentality. And so mm -hmm. for us, uh, we saw that there were a lot of, you know, really complex solutions to tremors out in the market. But those uh, solutions were really uh, tailored to specific, uh, I guess, actions. And so the best example I can give is uh, the weighted, uh, I guess it was the, the spoon. I, I forget the name of it, but it's basically a spoon that uh, senior citizens can use to help counteract their tremors. And while it does use a lot of counterweight technology, uh, it's something that you could only primarily use for eating. And so this glove, the idea was that they could use that for any sort of action. And so by being able to insert different weights into that glove, it ideally, they can tailor it to meet their own tremor needs. That's fascinating. So, and has anything come from that, uh, the, uh, from once you have made the patent, what's the next step for that? Yeah, uh, so I, I guess I didn't really continue along with the project simply because I wanted to get more in experience in the industry first. But the teammates that I work with, they actually, we actually had formed a startup, and I think it won uh, the Inventor Prize at Georgia Tech, which is great. So I was definitely glad to be a part of that experience. But I think I recognized uh, quickly on that I needed to gain more exposure before I could truly, I guess, get behind an idea like this, just because uh, I think with solutions at the end of the day, it's even if you see success in early trials, it's really important to see it through to the end because you might find that there's a lot more complexities to that device uh, 
that needs to be taken into consideration. I'm not sure if that made sense, but that makes total sense because I mean, how old were, I mean, that was pretty wise for you to have seen kind of a big picture idea of that. Uh, how old were you when you, um, when you, when you finished this? Yeah. Yeah. This was uh, when I was a uh, third year in college. Uh, and so I guess as a senior, that was when I decided to kind of pursue full-time opportunities first before kind of diving right into the start of space. Uh, and I, I kind of realized early on as well that like, while this, you know, glove might be good for essential tremors, it wasn't say, as effective on Parkinson's patients. And so uh, I clearly needed to get a lot more, uh, I guess, experience before I could feel comfortable just diving into the startup space. So you you interned at a startup. Uh, what's, yeah, what's, that, what's that like? Because, I mean, that's, yeah. that's got to be that's got to be a different experience than when you're at a major hospital or biomedical firm that you had maybe interned at before, there's got to be a different ethos and a different energy at a startup uh, and, and, and all of that. How would you describe the difference? Because you've, you've had your foot in both of those realities. What was that like? Yeah, of course. And just for context, uh, the startup that I worked for was a company called Modus Nova, where we worked with stroke rehabilitation. And so Honestly, working with a startup gave me uh, way more growth than I could have expected for a big company. And I truly am glad that I interned for a startup first because uh, that is where you get to see the most tangible impact on a patient in the sense that uh, not only are you working on that device, but you also get to see patients try on that device. So in my case, I was working with robot robotic uh, kind of gadgets that stroke patients could put their arm through and uh, and by virtue of, say, playing games on a console screen with that arm, they actually regain their movement just through repeated trial and error. And so for me, uh, I, what I enjoy the most about a startup is that the roles that you have are very blurred in the sense that you're not just one specific role. Uh, you encompass whatever the company needs. And in, in the case of Modus Nova, at least, uh, I was working with a very small team. And so it was really cool to be able to just, you know, walk to the next cubicle and, you know, have a conversation with the CEO and, uh, yeah, I truly gained a lot of experience in just project, I guess, project management as well as just time management in that uh, role. It's interesting that you say that because uh, earlier in the conversation, you in your current role, you use the uh, expression that you're a jack of all trades. And it really seemed that that really had to be something that you embraced in the environment at the startup, uh, the way that you just described that. So uh, that that must have been something that was very easily transferable into uh, being open to how you're going to be pushed into these new roles and challenges at, at, at Boston uh, Scientific. So are do you work? So where where is your office? Are you in, in Illinois? Are you in Boston? Or what? What's the what's the uh, what is the the map of uh, of where you've been uh, in, in your travels so far? Yeah, of course. So thankfully, my work, uh, my full time work plans weren't disrupted with the pandemic. And so I, I guess I am very fortunate in that. So right now I'm living uh, or my work itself is in Marlboro, Massachusetts, but I currently live in Cambridge right next to Harvard. So it's about a, a 30, 40 minute drive from work. But uh, at least uh, as a 22 year old, I figured that it would be nicer to live near a city uh, just to, you know, just. So I'd be able to, you know, see all my friends as well as just, uh, I guess, enjoy life outside of the suburbs. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're at Boston, uh, Boston. So, uh, how do you like living out East and, and what, what so, cause, cause you, I mean, it's, you started off is in, in the Western suburb of Chicago, then you go to 
Georgia, and then you go up to the Northeast. I mean, that's a lot of traveling, and I, you know, in some ways, a lot of different types of maybe culture shock of of different points of America. Um, what's that been like, and 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 what was your experience adjusting to all those different places that you traveled? Yeah, I, I think uh, ultimately speaking, uh, the what, what makes the adjustment easier is being surrounded by you know a support group, and so. Uh, back home, of course, I had my friends uh, that I still keep in touch with today from West Chicago, uh, which I'm grateful for. And then going into Atlanta to go to school, uh, I obviously uh, formed you know friends in college that I also consider quite close to. Uh, coming to Massachusetts has definitely been, uh, I guess, a bit different given the pandemic. Uh, I have made friends, and there are friends that I made for my internship last summer, which was also in Massachusetts. And I'm fortunate to have a roommate who I'm pretty close with. But uh, I will say that it is a little bit different now, given that it is harder to meet new people and it is harder to make new friends. But living, you know, right next to it, living in a college town, I would say that I can imagine that it'll be easier just to meet new people and make friends. And so by virtue of that, I, I guess I still am very fortunate to be living in a city environment similar to Atlanta and similar to Chicago. So you're going to be on this road. Can you refresh my memory? The rotation that you're on right now, you said it's every, what, what's, what was the longevity of each of the rotations of the three that you're on? Yeah, of course. So it's uh, every year. Yeah. For three years. Okay. So every year for three years, then in, do you get a choice of where you would go? So ultimately you go through the rotation. Do you then, I, I would imagine that they would ultimately want to place you with like, Hey, you're best here. Um, where, what happens at the end of the, those three, do you then finally settle in one of those three or, and then where do you go from at the end of those three years? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Basically, I, I get the opportunity to choose which rotation I like the best and choose that as my full-time role. Um, quite honestly, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do after those three years, so it may even involve going to an advanced education, whether it be an MBA, a master's, or a PhD. But uh, those are things that I'll probably think about a little bit later in time. For sure. I mean, uh, it would. I mean, you can't uh, you know, throw a rock uh, from where you're at. I mean, you have – I mean, isn't like, – if you're in Cambridge – like you, you cross the bridge and you're already your choice is Harvard or MIT. I mean, it's all it's all right there. So that's got to be really exciting to be really just smelling the air of incredible academia <laughs> and science and all of that. Uh, just uh, all right there. And so usually at the end of the interview, I like to kind of ask uh, students, uh, former students if they have any advice for current students of what's the best path for success and how you were able to kind of uh, to achieve your goals and get to where you are, what would you advise current Wildcats? Yeah, of course. So my famous or my favorite quote by Coach McClelland actually was uh, hustle beats talent when talent doesn't hustle. But uh, what I didn't kind of realize coming into college, especially is that this hustling doesn't necessarily have to fall just on your shoulders. And I would say that, a lot of where I've gotten to today has been uh, because of asking, you know, others for help. Uh, that's something that you kind of have to grow. I think we're taught at least that you need to be, you know, you need to do everything on your own and that asking for help is a sign of weakness. But quite honestly, a lot of times it's been more efficient for me to reach out to somebody that's more knowledgeable in something rather than spend five hours trying to figure that out myself. And so I would say the biggest advice that I can give uh, to current students is to one, obviously be curious, but also to to not be afraid to lean into others that may be, you know, experts in their craft or just more knowledgeable in a certain subject matter. Because I think even in my work, I, I find myself, uh, I find it quite daunting being in a field where you need years and years of experience. But 
what makes it so much easier is knowing that there's people that are, are so willing to answer a question. All it takes is that, I guess, extra step. Yeah, especially in a, a field where, I mean, where science, everyone wants truth and they want the answers. So, I mean, if, if one... I would imagine that if someone has an ego, they don't last very long because the spirit of collaboration is what gets everyone to the goal faster, right? It's that there's that famous African proverb, which is if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go farther, you go together, right? And it seems like that what you just said echoes that idea uh, perfectly. So, wow. Rahul, this was a great interview, and I'm so excited for everything that you've accomplished and and really uh, where you're going uh, with all this. So uh, assuming I'm still doing this podcast in a few years, we're going to check up and we'll see uh, what cool things that you've invented uh, as since then. So this has been really fun. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mr. Shramal. Yeah, it was an honor being able to speak with you again. Ah, That's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music, Podcasts, and search We Go Vox.